Under the Controlled Substances Act and Corollary State Law, the growth, trafficking, sale, possession, or consumption of psychedelics may be a felony punishable by imprisonment, fines, forfeiture of property, or some combination thereof. Psychedelical X is for general information only. Information provided on the show does not constitute legal advice, nor does your listening to the show create an attorney-client relationship with the host. Hello, this is Gary Smith, and I want to welcome you to another episode of Psychedelic Alex, The Law of Psychedelics, my ongoing exploration of the question of the law of psychedelics. On today's episode, I'm doing a very brief review of a sort of sad case that happened a few weeks back. Uh, specifically, it was the decision from the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals of Harborside's challenge of the applicability of 280E, an IRS regulation that mandates that cannabis businesses and any business engaged in the sale of Schedule One substances does not have ability to take customary business write-offs. So the entire cannabis industry that you see around the country has been for years and continues to pay something like three times the effective tax rate that literally any other business would be paying, which makes the operation of these businesses financially challenging because damn near every dollar gets taxed and there's no ability to write it off. Um, Harborside fought this for years and unfortunately the Court of Appeals just... Uh, didn't see it Harborside's way. So 280E is going to remain the law in the United States for years to come, which is why we need cannabis legislation reform at the federal level. And also this will make an impact for a future psychedelics uh, industry such as may exist. Anyway, here's a review of the case. Okay, so I have here up on the screen for everybody to read along if they wish. And, and by the way, this is a 19-page opinion. We're certainly not going to cover all 19 pages in the next 20 minutes, although who knows, maybe we will. But um, as you can see, this is a, a published decision from the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals. And here's the case number, and you can see the party names are Patients Mutual Assistance Collective Corporation, DBA Harborside Health Center, versus the Commissioner of Internal Revenue. The backstory behind the case is essentially an ongoing story of a tax fight between Harborside and the IRS. And for those of you who are not familiar, Harborside is the nation's probably oldest and largest, or at least was until recent history, largest cannabis dispensary. And they're based out of Oakland. And really, you can't begin to talk about the modern history of cannabis without talking about Harborside. And as a result, they also have years of back tax issues that finally got embroiled with the IRS. And at the heart of it all is IRS regulation, or code section, excuse me, 280E, 280E. And what IRS code section 280E stands for is the proposition that illicit businesses, meaning businesses who deal in the trafficking of Schedule One drugs, are not entitled to any of the customary business write-offs that any other normal business enterprise would enjoy. 
So, for example, writing off your pens and pencils and payroll and electric bills and insurance premiums, etc., that every business, including law firms, enjoys, yeah, none of that's available for the most part to the cannabis industry, including the ancillary service providers to the industry. And that's also another crux of this case. Now, the implications of this, of course, result in cannabis businesses paying effectively something like a 3x tax rate, meaning they're paying three times the tax rate that any other business would be paying. Naturally, Harborside was not thrilled with having to pay all that tax, and also part of their internal business structures incorporated planning in a way that they parcelized and compartmentalized certain facets of their operation to try to insulate it from 280E. But as this decision reveals, Harborside ultimately failed in those efforts. So let's start to dig in now that I've given you a little bit of premise. So you'll see Harborside had taken a tour already to the uh, United States Tax Court. And that preceded their trip to the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals. And clearly, as the appellants here, you can already predict that they lost at the tax court as well. And if you weren't sure about that, well, the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals puts that right up top and center in the front. And you can read, the panel affirmed the tax court's decision on a petition for redetermination of federal income tax deficiencies that turned on whether a cannabis dispensary that purchases the marijuana it resells and values its inventory using the cost method of accounting must account for its inventory cost in accordance with Treasury Regulation Section 1.471-3B. Now, at this point, I will again remind, I'm not a tax lawyer, so a lot of this tax code stuff in here is gobbledygook to my ears and possibly gobbledygook to yours, too. But nonetheless, I, uh, I hope those of you who appreciate a good tax code are enjoying reviewing this right now. For the rest of us normal people, um, yeah, it hurts a little. But let's keep going. And here the court is starting to explain who the parties are and what their positions are. And here we see they're referring to Harborside. And just like I said, they were one of the largest marijuana dispensaries in the country and for years operated as a not-for-profit corporation and engaged in retail cannabis sales under California state law. And during those years, Harborside claimed tens of millions of dollars in exclusions. And the Commissioner of the Internal Revenue Service disallowed nearly all of them and issued notices for deficiency. And on a petition for redetermination of those deficiencies, the tax court ruled in favor of the commissioner. And here the court explains, just like I mentioned at the beginning, that corporations typically can claim deductions for ordinary and necessary expenses that are paid or incurred during the taxable year in carrying on any trade or business. But... The court then introduces us to the fact that IRS Section 280E makes a difference for certain businesses. And the court goes on to tell us that, however, otherwise allowed deductions are not available to taxpayers who engage in certain activities Congress regards as unlawful. Now, interesting here, apparently uh, there was an attempt for the first time in this appeal to raise a constitutional claim. And this is referenced at the bottom of the page. And as we scroll on to page three here, it spills over onto the next page, uh, there was apparently a 16th Amendment violation claim uh, that was introduced for the first time in the appeal, and the court declined to hear it because it wasn't part of the case below. 
But that means there's still an open question mark as to whether a 16th Amendment case couldn't be brought. But at least in this instance, it wasn't brought, and therefore we have no idea. But nonetheless, absent the 16th Amendment argument, the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals still found the taxes due and that the IRS's calculation was accurate. The next paragraph here in the decision talks about how Harborside also additionally argued that some of its expenditures, even if not deductible under 280E, could still be excluded from income as part of its inventory costs under general inventory tax accounting rules. And what they're alluding to is the ability for for cannabis businesses to at least at least be able to recoup costs of goods sold. And that, uh, that is actually a practice available to cannabis businesses. There is an ability to recoup costs of goods sold. But it's by no means as extensive or uh, as broad-reaching as the ability for general write-offs. And here again, I guess just like the 16th Amendment argument, the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals declined to entertain that argument because, again, that argument also wasn't raised before the tax court. So there could be some additional unresolved argument for 280E enthusiasts to try at some future date in some future case. But again, we don't have those premises available in this opinion. And then here we get down to the actual opinion of the court. And the court frames the question, uh, on its face, this tax case presents the technical issue whether a cannabis dispensary that purchases the marijuana it resells and that values its inventory using the cost method must account for its inventory cost in accordance with Section 1.471-3b of the Treasury regulations. But at its core, this dispute reflects the latest attempt by a medical marijuana retailer to ameliorate the significant tax consequences Congress has prescribed for businesses that Congress regards as trafficking in controlled substances. Under federal law, those prohibited substances include marijuana, even though some states have more recently legalized its sale. This disharmony between federal and state law produces the multi-million dollar tax controversy before us. Ultimately, we hold that the taxpayers' arguments either are without merit or were not preserved for our review. We therefore affirm the tax court. All right, so you've got the clear death sentence at the front end of the case. If you didn't want to read further, probably you wouldn't have to. But if you wanted the details, certainly you'd keep reading on, and so shall we do. And so the court starts off introducing the the parties. So it talks here a little bit about Harborside, describing it as a C corporation under federal tax law, does business under a trade name. They're going to call it Harborside inside this appeal. That's fine. That makes sense. Um, and then the court does us all a favor and says, hey, we're going to explain the functions of Harborside's business so you have context for how the court arrives at its decision, which is great. So as we go on, the court describes that Harborside operates as a retail cannabis dispensary. And for the particular years at question in the case, the Harborside was operated as a not-for-profit corporation and as a collective operating under California law. And consistent with California law, and that's important that the court's acknowledging that, I, I suspect had it determined Harborside was operating outside of California law, this would have been worse. Um, so the point that they're pointing this out is, I think, important. Um, but in any event, the, the court says that Harborside was selling products only to people who possessed 
the proper credentials under California law. And this included the documented conveyance or transference of cultivation rights to Harborside from its patients. And that's consistent with a cannabis collective, by the way. So if you're unfamiliar with the way collectives operate in states, including Arizona, that allow for medical cultivation rights, as we have here, the medical cultivation right holding patient can actually transfer that cultivation right to a licensed caregiver. And that caregiver becomes the proxy. So this is what the court's talking about, is that kind of an arrangement. Anyway, the court goes on to describe that Harborside sold a variety of products that included buds or cannabis flowers. That's, that's funny that they had to clarify that. And they also indicate that Harborside additionally purchased buds uh, from its patient growers and didn't grow any itself. And the court goes on to describe how Harborside would take in these products, weighing them and testing them and negotiating for a purchase price and then holding them in a secure vault, and then ultimately putting them out for sale. The court also talks about how Harborside would acquire its inventory from nurseries in the form of clones, and the court explains what a clone is. And also, the court tells us that Harborside would resell all of these products, including extracts and oils, and even sold non-marijuana products, including things like branded t-shirts and paraphernalia. And then the court sets the stage for the tax status of Harborside being a C-corporation and the legal nature of its obligation to pay tax, as well as citing various internal revenue code sections that impact how those tax calculations are made. And then the court moves into the crux of the problem, that once a taxpayer has calculated its gross income, it would subtract deductions, such as ordinary and necessary business expenses, under Internal Revenue Code Section 63 and others. And then, further down, the court actually presents some examples, uh, literally showing the math, which is great. I don't know that they necessarily had to do this, but it's wonderful that they did. So you can see, in a mathematical sense, how the court is looking at this, as well as in a legal sense. And then after laying out how an ordinary business deduction would be taken and how that math might play out on a tax return, the court then presents the 280E problem. That basically everything we just said above, yeah, ignore that because if you're under 280E, none of that applies to you. And, and here's the quote from 280E itself. No deduction or credit shall be allowed for any amount paid or incurred during the taxable year in carrying on any trade or business, if such trade or business, or the activities which comprise such trade or business, consists of trafficking in controlled substances within the meaning of Schedule 1 and Schedule 2 of the Controlled Substances Act, which is prohibited by federal law or the law of any state in which such trade or business is conducted. Okay, that's kind of a really specific IRS code section. And it is. It is very specific, and it also has a very particular origin. And the origin of Section 280E is that it was enacted, I believe, around 1983 during the Reagan administration. And it was specifically intended and aimed at combating the cocaine cowboys of Miami. Now, you might remember this was the heady days of Pablo Escobar, and cocaine was flowing into the United States pretty readily. Anyway, in order to fight the flow of that 
illicit product and also the monies that were being generated in the hundreds of millions. And I think, indeed, at one point, Pablo Escobar was a billionaire. So that's how much we're talking about. In order to combat that, the Congress passed this particular code section so that any efforts by traffickers to engage in some sort of legitimacy or money laundering would be undermined. Uh, And this was a very successful code section, and it had a particular purpose to which it was put, and unfortunately, because it's broadly worded to attack all Schedule I substances, not just cocaine, cannabis gets caught up in it. Now, a real easy solution to this problem, of course, would be for the Congress to just make one slight little tweak to 280E to exclude cannabis, and that would put cannabis back on the normal track of every other business and have normal, ordinary tax deductibility. But stop for a moment and think, what on earth would Congress's motivation be to do that when it's taking in way more money in tax revenue if it doesn't change the law? Something to think about. Anyway, let's keep scrolling. Oh, there. And there you go. Right there on the top of page eight, the court confirms what I just said. Uh, Under federal law, marijuana is just such a controlled substance right there. Then the case goes on with a concession from Harborside that indeed it is subject to 280E. And the dollars we're talking about that Harborside is facing here is, as quoted in the opinion, over $29 million. So for any operators existing in the cannabis industry already who have, for years, not maybe done their taxes correctly, this is the threat. It's not merely that you're paying way more in tax. It's that you may have years of backlog tax errors, and you'll have to pay for all of that, including late fees, fines, penalties, interest, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So these are pretty horrifying numbers we're talking about. And the court explains how Harborside went through the process of petitioning the tax court, trying to substantiate its costs and its arguments for proper deductibility. But still, Harborside didn't prevail at the tax court. And if you need a citation, by the way, to the tax case, it's right there in the opinion here. It's 151 TC, tax court, 176, and it's a 2018 case. And by the way, you you absolutely should read that opinion because it goes much, much further than this appellate opinion does. Um, And even the court notes this because Harborside made a strategic decision to raise only certain limited issues on appeal. But the overarching tax case, it's absolutely worth the read because amongst other things it stands for is that the ancillary businesses not just merely the license holders, but the businesses who support those license holders, if those businesses are in any way, shape, or form involved in touching the cannabis plant or supporting directly the cannabis plant's trafficking, those businesses likewise are subject to 280E. So as we see in the model out there, a lot of these dispensaries have separate management companies that operate many of the processes that the license holder otherwise would do so for itself. Those management companies are universally subject to 280E, same as the license holder. So again, I do recommend, although it's a 2018 case, it's still got a lot of meat in it, and you should obtain a copy. It's on the internet for free. Download it, read it, and if you're really serious about operating a business in the cannabis space or, or counseling people who do, you would be Uh, very well advised to know that case. Anyway, the court then stops at the bottom of page 8, 
and says this is where the appeal starts, and the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals confirms its jurisdiction. So here, at the top of page 9, starts the actual meat of the decision. And the court talks about how Harborside's got a two-fold strategy. One is to attack 280E as unconstitutional under the 16th Amendment, uh, which we already know because the court synopsis at the top tells us that was not a preserved claim, so they didn't even consider it. And likewise, Harborside had a second-prong strategy of just trying to get the court to offer a more favorable ruling on the exclusions it was seeking. And again, we already know from the foreshadowing of the synopsis at the top of the opinion that Harborside also didn't preserve that argument for appeal either. So stepping into this, we already know the, the court has said no to all of it. And here the court cites us to some existing 280E case law regarding cannabis in particular, and also, while these are split decisions amongst the circuits, and there are no Supreme Court opinions yet laying down affirmatively what the final word on the subject is, there are at least some circuit cases that do already determine that the 16th Amendment is not a viable basis of challenge to 280E, nor is the 8th Amendment. Now, over the ensuing pages, the court talks about how there are different methods for calculating costs of goods sold, and one of these being Unicap. Uh, and again, this is heady, heady tax stuff and way beyond my, uh, my tax knowledge. But again, if you're a tax person or you are concerned with these sorts of issues, you'll want to pay attention to these sections. Now, here's an important paragraph at the bottom of page 10, which the court confirms that while deductions aren't available, exclusions are. And again, these are the costs of goods sold exclusions that cannabis businesses are entitled to take. And this is what the court is referring to. So again, layers of complexity in the world of tax, which is why I don't practice tax law. And here at the top of page 11, the court also gives a nod to the fact that most folks generally prefer deductions over exclusions, which is true, because the list of deductions is way more vast than the list of exclusions, and the impact to the taxable bottom line is obviously more meaningful, which is, of course, why cannabis businesses would appreciate being able to do what other businesses do and take advantage of both. Yeah, and here at the bottom of 11, even the court acknowledges as much. It says, but although exclusions are generally not as good as deductions, they are better than nothing. Amen, that is true. And here into page 12, the court talks about Harborside being a merchandising business, having to maintain inventory, and having inventory tax accounting issues. So the court acknowledges that indeed, yes, the, the court is tasked with resolving valuation issues on that inventory. And in this section of the opinion, the court is talking about presumptions that are granted to the Internal Revenue Commissioner, but also, this is an important part, that no special deference is given to the tax court's decision. But it stands for the proposition that the court is, the reviewing court, the Court of Appeals here, is going to review these issues de novo, with, with fresh eye, with no presumption necessarily that the commissioner got it correct and they're not bound to the commissioner's determination and then over the next several paragraphs the court gets into a discussion about 
how inventory is identified, what's considered part of inventory, what's not, and it uses here in this paragraph an example of a winery, including not merely the grapes for its inventory, but also the bottles, the corks, the labels, etc. In that sense, so too no different for cannabis. And the court goes on for several pages describing how inventory is calculated and the different arguments surrounding it. And here in the transition between page 14 and page 15, the court talks about how Harborside is trying to seek the court's consent to put more of its expenditures under the column of excludable cost rather than ordinary business deduction. And the court ultimately determines that it can't do that. And then here... Deeper into the opinion at the top of page 18, the court, after running through about six of Harborside's arguments, finally comes to this paragraph and says, hey, Harborside presents no cogent argument for why a marijuana dispensary cannot compute its cost of production under the usual rules that apply to a retailer. And it does not claim that it is a retail merchant that uses the retail method in its cost accounting. Harborside's only argument appears to be that because its expenditures would be disallowed as deductions under Section 280E, it instead should be allowed to exclude those amounts as costs by electing to proceed under Section 1.471-3D rather than 1.471-3B. But Harborside does not ground this entitlement to different treatment in any statutory or regulatory authority. Well, there you go. You pretty much don't have to read beyond that. The court is calling out Harborside's argument here, saying that there's no basis in any existing code section that would support the argument. So the court sums up by saying, we thus hold that the tax court did not err in concluding that Harborside's inventory cost for each of the years at issue is determined by section 1.471-3b. Although Harborside is subject to serious tax consequences because of the nature of its business, the primary argument it has preserved for our review fails based on generally applicable provisions of federal tax law. Marijuana dispensaries, like all taxpayers, must abide the intricacies of the Internal Revenue Code and the Treasury regulations. Then the court goes on in the next paragraph to say that this leaves Harborside arguing that the tax court erred in its application of 1.471-3b by failing to allow at least some of Harborside's claimed exclusions, such as employee salaries relating to negotiating marijuana purchases, as, quote, necessary charges incurred in acquiring possession of the goods, end quote. However, as with the 16th Amendment claim, Harborside failed to raise that argument before the tax court. The issue is therefore forfeited. So, There it is. Two of the main arguments that might have made a difference here, but at least on the 16th Amendment argument, there's a Tenth Circuit precedent that suggests otherwise. But we'll never know. We'll never know. Um, But unfortunately, this means 280E remains, and every one of the businesses out there that's operating under it really needs to read this tax decision as well as the underlying decision from the tax court. It's, it's mission-critical stuff for operating the uh, accounting on behalf of these businesses. Anyway, I hope you enjoyed. And uh, this was all about tax, and I'm going to go take an aspirin now and lay down because I think my head hurts. Have a question about psychedelics and the law? You're welcome to submit them. Please send your questions to admin at psychedelicalex.com. Submission of questions is not an assurance that they will be used on the show.
Also, please be aware that neither the submission of a question nor a response creates an attorney-client privilege between you and the show's host, nor does an answer constitute legal advice. Information provided is for general purposes only. If you need legal counsel, you should hire competent counsel in your community.